The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the debut of the Hennessy Report. I'm your host, David Hennessy. Since the Hennessy Report is in cooperation with the Northeast Human Resources Association, it's very fitting that our first guest is Tracy Burns, the CEO of NERA. By the way, just want to give you a heads up that on our next episode, we have Beth Gross, the Chief People Officer of TripAdvisor. That will be released very shortly. Back to this episode, we'll first hear about Tracy's very cool HR background before she became the CEO of NERA. And she'll talk a little bit about how NERA helps raise the game of the HR function in New England. And really something that comes through is her deep HR expertise. And she even offers some good advice on this podcast to the HR function and HR leaders and people moving up in the function. Talks about uh, the greatest leader she's ever worked for. And it's somebody we all know. So that's an interesting exchange. And at the end, we learn some interesting facts about Tracy. I bring you Tracy Burns. Well, it's great to be joined by the CEO of NERA, the North, Northeast Human Resources Association, here in their headquarters in historic Concord, Massachusetts, Tracy Burns. Hello. Hello, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Thanks for taking your time out of your schedule, because I know as this of this recording, we're about T-minus a month yep. from the biggest event you put on every year, which is your annual conference. So yep, we're absolutely. right getting into that sweet spot. When is the bubble of preparing for that conference? When's, when's the stress really on for you as you get ready for it? I think there, there are uh, a couple of bubbles. Right now, um, I think we're still trying to enjoy the last few days of summer, but certainly after Labor Day um, is concluded, it, it will the heat will be on for all the last-minute logistics and um, making sure that everything's in its place. Because venue, speakers, yeah. those are those are long done. That's How many months ago was that? When are you blocking everything for we typically plan a year in advance, so we will have keynotes and things like that. You know, we're already working on 2018 conference, but we'll we make our selections in the spring for all of the breakouts. The location we already know will be the Seacrest again next year, so we try to do the big things and the dates and stuff up front. We're going to talk about Nero a little bit later, but I wanted to get more into your background, mm-hmm. and then we'll come back to Nero. So we met way back. Um, it was Harvard Management Company when you were the head of HR, and I remember when I first met you, you were working on about six things at the same time while we were having a conversation. We also talked while you were HMC um, when you started to consider this role. I remember talking about you were in the interview process and we had talked a little bit about uh, your excitement in joining. So um, it'd be good for our listeners to hear a little bit about your career background, how you got to where you are today, where you started in HR. I know you have an interesting background that started in music publications on the West Coast, so maybe you could take us through your career evolution. Absolutely. Um, I think unlike a lot of HR professionals, I knew that I wanted to do this at a fairly early age. My stepmom was, she spent 40 years in HR in ammunition manufacturing out west. And about the time I was a teenager, she started working on what was then called total quality management. So she'd bring these big binder binders home. And for whatever reason, I just got intrigued by that work. And so my Initial um, sort of focus in HR was always going to be organizational development training. And so I went to school, business school, with a minor in HR. 
and worked almost 18 years in corporate HR. I did start in publishing, which was um, Guitar Player and Bass Player Magazine, which was a very cool environment. Was um, it because you had an interest in music? or was it- No, it was the early 90s, and it was the job that I got, applied for and got, which was great. I felt very lucky. It was actually part-time, so I had two part-time jobs at the time. And it was a great environment. California is not necessarily an easy place to learn HR. There are a lot of uh, rules and regulations that are... You know, everyone else has sort of come up to speed with, including Massachusetts, probably right behind California when it comes to just being um, pretty rigid around HR employment law. So in that case, it was great. Uh, but the environment in, it, in it itself, as you can imagine, was pretty casual. Um, we actually um, did the very last interview with Jerry Garcia before he passed away. Now, I wasn't involved in any of the interviewing, but I hired the people that did those interviews. And I, you know, so I felt like it was somewhat, and my name was on the inside of one of the magazines. So I was like, well, that was my claim to fame. So, um, so I just spent, and then I moved out um, to Boston in about 1996 and I spent my entire career up until 2010 in corporate HR. And what other organizations were you in? Um, well, as you man- mentioned, um, Harvard Management Company. That right, was actually the, the recent one before NARA. Yeah, right, right before NARA. Um, so that's the endowment that um, manages the money for Harvard University. I worked at UMass Medical School out in Worcester in the arm of the school that does public sector consulting. So it was a very mission-driven organization. Um, it was sort of the for-profit arm of the school that fed funds back into the school. So it was an interesting business model. I worked for Sam Adams, um, locally known as Boston Beer, but um, I worked there for five years. And um, prior to that, I worked at IBT, which is now State Street Bank. So financial services, healthcare, nonprofit, for-profit. Publications. Yep, exactly. And the the training from your family and ammunition. Yeah, exactly. Quite a wide variety of industries you're exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. So what drew you to the NERA? What was think, interesting about that to you? I think a few things. So I had I joined there probably like a year after I moved to Boston. So as a networking and professional development opportunity, I think my boss said you should join NARA, and so I did. That was kind of what we did back then. Um, and I then I started volunteering at NARA and did some teaching. And um, about the time that I started to get a little itchy about being what I call inside the corporate box, if you will, in just an HR capacity, it had been... 17, 18 years, this opportunity came up. And um, I really never looked back. It was an interesting, I did, as you mentioned, I did, you know, some due diligence. I talked to a lot of people who were involved, more intimately involved in the organization than I was, including a lot of the board members. And, um, and, and moving, and still keeping a foot in HR, but moving into maybe a different sort of environment, right. if you will. Right, so. tapping into your expertise, but in a different way. And you actually, you didn't mention this, but I remember you doing a little of this when you were at HFC because you inherited the reins yep. of FSHR, Financial right. Services HR, which was, and it is an organization, I think that's now rolled under NERA, um, that served, it was like an HR association for HR professionals in financial services. It, it wasn't was. in the investment world, yep, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you came and experienced in this world I did. a little bit. You know? I think it inspired me to be more, I'm not sure if, ha- if I had not inherited that group and gone through um, the experience that I did with it in the evolution of it being maybe 75 people to well over 200 given the financial crisis and seeing that that association, that community really filled a lot of need for HR professionals. Um, not that NARA didn't, but it was sort of this downtown Boston. Right, it was kind a of, niche, filling the need of a niche, right? Right. Um, having gone through all of that and um, feeling as though... 
um, a lot of gratification of bringing people together and and giving them a place where sometimes, frankly, it was just to close the door and, you know, almost therapeutic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because a lot of HR people were getting laid off at the time. They were transitioning. They were laying people off as we were at Harvard. And sometimes those were new things, but either way, it was just could be really emotionally draining. Right. It was new for a lot of HR people, especially yeah. the scale. Right. 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 And oftentimes HR people don't have that person they can lean on inside right. of the organization because a lot of the information is confidential and yeah, it can be it's very hard. isolating. Yeah, yeah. You don't have the support. So yeah, it was an interesting, really an interesting bridge. Mm. You know, it just it's it, everything just lined up right. perfectly. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Maybe a little bit about what you see as the you know the role or the mission of what you do here at Nera. I mean, some people that are listening, I imagine, don't know much about the organization. Uh, it is the largest HR association in New England and has been for quite a while. Um, maybe just a little bit about Nera and what sure. you're trying to do here. So we have been around in this market for well over 30 years and um, have evolved, I think, um, pretty well with the the um, evolution of the HR profession, which is I'll talk about in a minute, but is really important, both from a from being the largest association, I feel, I feel like we have an obligation to make sure we stay ahead of the curve in terms of what HR leaders need and at the same time build that community. And so, you know, a lot of what we do here is professional development. We're building a community of HR people that can lean on each other in the times that we were just talking about when things become isolating and or just challenging environment in general. And so, you know, a, a, our sole purpose is really to support the HR professionals and a majority of them are here in Massachusetts, although we do have members in other parts of New England. Um, and beyond professional development and the community, we also have tools and resources that people can use. They can get in touch with each other, but we also have templates of policies and things that are really, you know, sort of um, might seem basic. But if you are the sole practitioner in an HR firm or you're in a startup firm and you've never done HR, it's a great opportunity to be able to tap into things and not have to, you know, spin your wheels. So um, that's a majority of sort of why we exist as an organization. And the shift has been um, predominantly in programming, I would say. So I've been here almost seven years. And the and we, when I first came in 2010, you know, we were all not, we're all in crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Some people Nobody were like, had any money. Yeah. Right. No one had any money. And, you know, all the associations for the most part were really, had, were hurting partly because of the economy, but also because of the expectations that shifted in just why you would join an organization. So as I mentioned in the 90s, my boss said, you should join. I'm like, okay. You know, you sort of did that. Right. At that time, we had a financial crisis. Also, social media was coming on at the right. same time. Right. right. So, so you have that, comp- com- um, the the competitiveness of social media being what used to be the leverage of an association, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to connect it's people. Right, the social part, right. So the social pieces of it, and frankly, even the ability to Google a question or Google a template, mm-hmm. or, and then um, having other organizations put on different programming. So the, the kind of the core leverage that an association had beyond membership started to kind of be threatened by not only the economy, but all these different types of competition that we didn't have in prior to that. So, um, but when I first came in, um, you know, we had been hit pretty hard. Luckily, we had many, many years of success at NARA um, because of prior leadership. And we were able to sustain our, this organization um, with, you know, reserves that we had, frankly, you know, um, that allowed us to continue to operate a staff, which a lot of associations, especially in the HR space, are completely volunteer based. 
which is a risk when the volunteers um, change over or they don't have interest anymore. So at least with us, we have paid staff. So we've been able to sustain that and at the same time really look at our programming and understand that um, the needs of an HR professional have changed. There's probably very little that we offer now that we offered seven years ago, and there's nothing that we offer now that we offered 10 years ago. Really? Give me an example of those kinds of things. Because, you know, I think, you know, like the frog boiling, sometimes you don't notice all the changes. I know some of the things we've done that are very exciting, especially with the conference, that are very different. But what are some of the things that are very different programming-wise? Well, I think that um, because of the evolution of the HR profession and moving from being highly administrative to being... um, more strategic, and not in all cases. If you're a, if you're starting up an HR function inside a small organization, there's still going to be a lot of heavy lifting and tactical things that you need to do. But there are different resources to um, tap into around like having a benefit broker versus doing the benefit administration yourself, or even outsourcing some of your HR function. So there's pieces of the administration that, depending on your organization, all and benefits. And, you know, you have to get people hired and you have to, you know, develop them and all of those other things. But the way in which we do those are different. And so our programming needed to change. We don't need to technically teach someone how to do benefits administration necessarily. Instead, we talk more about benefit plan design and cost containment and where the CEO may come in and say, we need to cut costs on employee benefits by X. You know, it's one thing to have your employees fill out the new employment forms that's either all online, self-managed, or you know it's a smaller part of your job, whereas you really have to understand the benefit market or the comp market or um, even from a human capital systems management, all the, the systems out there that are, you know, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of things to know that we just didn't have to worry about 20 years So ago. because of technology and resources that are available by third parties, the role has become more strategic. It's become more strategic, and it the, and it's shifted from the actual tactical work to a different kind of work that may not always feel strategic, but is you know somewhere between strategic planning and how you're strategically kind of positioning the organization and your department and then yourself. And so there's a piece of it that we I strongly felt, having been in the profession for so long, um, that we needed to be the place where people got that, and that not just not just always the place where someone said, um, I need this type of training, and then we would build it. It was a little bit more proactive than reactive. And because there's, you know, it, it's, um, if we were just feeding people the things they thought they needed, um, I think that we would end up eventually going away because partly because of competition, but also that's, I think our role is to pull people along. Right, you have to have that. You have to get this reaction from some HR people. I would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. I should be thinking. So you want to get that as well as being reactive to what their needs are. Yeah, absolutely. What are you looking for needs from HR people? What do you see as the like the top requests for um, content or forums? What do you what do you generally hear? I think there are a few things. One is the the language has shifted now to human capital management. So and that happens, right? We went for personnel to. HR, HR consultant, HR business partner. So some of the... Although you had a speaker last year at the conference didn't like the term human capital. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has their favorite words. Absolutely. But the concept, I think, of human capital management offers so maybe a more strategic um, viewpoint, I suppose. But that's sort of the the new way we're thinking about things in a more broad perspective. 
Um, but under that, it's all about talent. And the, the war for talent in some industries really died down when the economy um, took its toll. But um, in other areas where like life sciences, bio, pharma, it really never did. Now, now that financial services has come back and we have big organizations in the area like GE, who's saying we're going to hire 20,000. Amazon, Virginia. Red Hat, Google. It's yeah. amazing. Everybody's here. And they're all out in the seaport and a lot in Kendall Square yeah. and, and the Burbs, too. They're all it's looking amazing. for talent. Yeah. yeah. That's the number one thing. And right. so, and, and not necessarily help me develop my interviewing skills. So that's, an, that's a great example of 10 years ago. That was, you know, those classes, you could find one every day somewhere. Help me understand behavioral-based interviewing. How do I most effectively interview? You're not hearing those questions. Anymore. Not hearing those right. as much. How do, I, how do I find people? How do I source them? How do I understand, even before I get to that point, in my organization, what do we, what do we need from a workforce planning perspective? Right. And then how can we position ourselves to be a competitive employer of choice? That's been around for a while, but how do I build a culture and environment that will attract the right people? What is it that I need? How do I find them? And um, how do I bring them from other places sometimes too, absolutely. right? Because we're not we don't have as many people available in Boston right now. Right. For certain functions. Absolutely. And and so where do you find the talent? And and it's more about being in the communities now. In fact, what I've been hearing is that organizations who have the capacity and the resources to do this are actually talking to people well in advance of ever thinking about actually hiring them. So whether it's high school or college, or just having an industry-specific sort of event where they can start building relationships with these people that they may or may not want to hire someday. And that could be like a, I don't know, two, three, five-year strategy, which is really interesting because I used to get a lot of pressure um, to build pipelines. And it's like, if we can fill the jobs we have, we'll be happy. But now they're really serious about the pipeline. Right. Um, so that's really funny you said that. I just heard that for the first time where offers are being made to people that are just going to the senior year of high school. Oh my gosh. And yeah. I, I was surprised to hear that. You, yeah. you mentioned it. You said you've been yeah. hearing about this recruiting earlier on or getting them training and development in certain functions. Sure. Well, and I think in industries like the STEM you know, case, they're doing, companies are wisely investing in pushing um, or supporting people to go into STEM, especially women, but right. you know, into those fields where there's already a shortage. And if you look at the numbers, it will continue to be. So uh, those investments make a lot of sense. But just having those, just courting people for a lot longer than they used to be, it, um, and just talent in general is where the pressure is. You know, we talk about the association world. You know, I've been part of associations where there were dinner meetings, and I think that's that has kind of come out of favor a little bit more. Um, and it just seems like the association world has had to adapt to membership preferences. And you touched on that a little bit. What other things have you seen as far as format and the way people want to get, we're talking about the content more than the way people get their connection to yeah. your organization. A little bit of the way. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have made a, a fairly significant investment in technology um, because we saw early on that that was going to be competitive advantage for us from a from being able to keep compete with the new um, social media platforms or other organizations that were offering things online so we made an investment both in terms of how we operate our own um, membership database and the access to that internally and externally as well as our website and what that offers and um, what it connects to and just to be it before it was a little bit more static which I think everyone's was um, we've tried to keep uh, up with 
technology in terms of how we present ourselves and how we um, go to market so that we remain appealing to various age groups. And that's been a little bit of an interesting thing because while sometimes there's a perception that there is sort of the more, you know, junior to mid-level sort of organization for HR professionals, if you look at title alone, it's really director and above. And partly that is that spend power, right, your ability to do that. But also the demographics um, of a lot of, I would say our average demographic is probably a white female who's 45, maybe mid-career. But we're looking at the pipeline, just like any other organization is, and how to attract young professionals. So our investment in technology, I think um, early on in what we continue to do is to try to attack, to create a pipeline of young professionals who want to be part of NARA as well. So the, the way that we communicate on social media, and even I think... Um, one small example is we don't really do a lot in mail anymore. We don't send paper invoices. We don't because there's also there's an economic piece to that, but there's also an effectiveness and a and a perception piece. So you, we will do postcards and things like that every once in a while, but we really try to keep things mostly electronic and um, and immediate. So there's this immediacy that you know is is convenient and um, allows us to kind of stay. So. Well, you brought up uh, different age groups, and uh, it leads us to the NERA question of the podcast. Oh, boy. So, for those of you new to the podcast, this will be something we'll include every time. And the NERA question is, what things would you recommend to young HR professionals in HR or interesting in moving into or up in HR leadership? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, it's a great time to be in HR. I think that more so than um, even when I started, because of what I mentioned before, which is it is more strategic. I think that um, largely organizations understand better now the value that HR brings and the role that it can play that can impact culture. And if culture is king and helps you attract and retain talent, then it just positions HR as, you know, as more of a strategic player than than I probably did 10 or 15 years ago. I also think the work in general is just more interesting. So if you're in HR, thinking about getting into HR, sometimes a, you know you come through an operational or business line or an admin role. Um, I think getting some in, intel from someone you know already in HR is great because sometimes there's a perception, whether it's good or bad, that you know this is fun. Um, and some, sometimes, um, and sometimes it's like, oh, I wouldn't want to have to do that. And so I think really understanding the, the full scope of the profession is important before you move in. Um, but if you've already made a commitment to be in HR, I think that being involved in, this is, you know, obviously um, my opportunity to sell NARA, being involved in an association, whether it's NARA or not, is really important. And people will say, you know, millennials don't join, um, millennials don't want to meet face-to-face, it's not true at all. What we're finding is that our Young Professional Advisory Board um, was very easy to put together, and they have a lot of really great ideas, and they want to connect together. They want to be face-to-face, um, more so than just socially. They want to brainstorm ideas and talk about the profession and talk about the issues that they may be having inside of their own organization now. So um, I think it's great. I, I think not. it's still not a profession that people probably, you know, unlike me in high school, was like, I think that's something I really want to do. But it could be because of awareness. I mean, if my stepmom wasn't in HR, I probably would not have... No one was probably going to sell me on that. Um, although I, I had some friends in college that we all went through the same program and all ended up being sort of, you know, lifers, if you will. You bring up an interesting point. Um, 
that sometimes I've seen lately more people that come outside of HR get into HR leadership roles. We've seen that much more often yeah. in the last five, ten years. But you know, one thing we haven't seen too much, at least I haven't, you might say different, that we don't see a lot of CEOs coming out of that function. Yeah. And do you agree with that? Absolutely. And um, and that's a problem, isn't it? It is. So Absolutely. How, how can we change that? So maybe, I, maybe we can't, but how, how can it be changed? Well, I think that um, I'm smiling because I, I was on a panel. I don't think that you were in the audience, but I was on a panel probably 10 or 15 years ago with a couple of other gentlemen, and we were talking about CEOs. And I said, I think HR people would make phenomenal CEOs. And the reason being, and at the time it sounded a little bit like, well, of course you're going to say that because you're in HR. But I, I truly believe that um, the complexities that you're faced with as an HR professional, especially, well, in your entire career, but let's say when you get into the C-suite, the expectations and the complexities that you're dealing with um, are not that dissimilar than a CEO, right? I mean, I think that um, it's been typically like a finance person or an operational person that would move into CEO position. But if, if you think about it from a um, skill set standpoint, the complexities of dealing with human behavior and understanding the strategy of the organization and how to leverage your workforce aren't always things that from a finance or marketing or IT or operational standpoint are front and center. And I think as we've moved from the industrial to, you know, sort of the knowledge service economy, that that's a skill set that you absolutely have to have. And so I I really, and we just put together this program recently um, called the Executive Women in Leadership, which is one of the best things I think that we've done at NARA since I've been here. And it took a, a lot of a lot of effort by a lot of really great people. But one of the things that we talk about is how different it is. So this this particular program prepares women for the C-suite, just women. Um, most of them are, a couple of them Not are just actually- just HR. Just HR. Just HR, Yes, okay. thank you. So they're all, they all want to be a CHRO someday. At least they think they do. And what we've talked about is the transition into- the C-suite. So being an HR leader is one thing, right? You're leading a function and depending on the organization, you might have a variety. Your scope may be broad, but generally you're, you're leading an HR function. You're leaning, like all the other professions, you lean on your technical skills to a certain extent. You get into the C-suite and it's it's open field, right? And so being it, we're teaching them how to navigate those relationships, how to prepare for that, how to really hone their business skills. It's one thing to know the business that you're supporting, but it's another thing to know how the entire operation works. What are the internal and external market factors, all this stuff. Board, so board of directors, interactions. Board relations, yeah. all of those things that um, that are really important there. And I and I've what I've learned through that too is that I think I have a deeper appreciation for the complexities of being the top HR person and how in some ways there's more pressure than maybe some of the other roles. Um, and one of the nuances is that a lot of times, well, one is that you're um, often a confidant to the CEO, but then you have your peers are in the C-suite. And so you have to really be able to navigate the trust and the confidence of you know the CEO who you may be giving advice to that may impact your peers or not. Um, but also, if you're a really good C- uh, CHRO, then that's the role you play. And that's really, um, it's a critical role, right? And sure. I think that it is, um, there's a lot of pressure, but at the same time, you can have a really big impact. 
And so the insight that you would get from being at the right hand of the CEO, I think also could be a great pathway into being the CEO. That will be being groomed for that. Now, whether they'll take it or not, we'll, we'll see. But being so close to that CEO that you could just see the person going right into that role. Who do you look to now for HR thought leadership? I'm lucky um, because everyone that sits on the NARA board is an HR professional. So I essentially have a dozen advisors. Um, I also have everyone that used to sit on the NARA board because those relationships um, are are pretty deep. And so even when someone's not on the board, I even have people say, am I not on the board? I can't remember because they, we keep them so close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they still, they, they stay close. We keep them involved in one way or another. So um, I look to them for thought leadership. And that was, I think, one of the changes that we made um, when I came on board at Probably within two years, once we got the operational pieces sort of um, stabilized, if you will, the board role changed from being what I would say before was a little more hands-on tactical to being more strategic and thought leadership. And what it does is it allows us to really get the CHROs, the real thought leaders, because we have four meetings a year, we have things that go on in between, but for the most part, what we really want is their brains. And we want we want to know what they need, what they need from their direct reports informs our programming. And so we're not asking them to worry about the logistics of where we're going to have our next conference, who's a good keynote. I mean, we might ask them those things. Um, but it's more about the content. It's about the content, right. yeah. And so... And this, yeah, the direction. Right. There, right. And, you know, I think we're very fortunate in this market to have a lot of really talented CHROs. Um, I, I think that we could put any of them up against, you know... CHROs and other markets, and I and I don't know the other markets well enough. I just know that I look at my board compared to, um, you know, some of the other markets, and I'm like, we have really, a really talented group of people. Here. Sounds like the, you keep them nearer to you. That is the pun of the podcast. I apologize. <laughs> we do. Yes. Yes. You didn't say you said you didn't know much about the other markets, but you do have a relationship with Sherm. And what do you know about what's different in New England and Boston uh, compared to what you hear from your Sherm counterparts in other markets. Absolutely. Do you get together with them? We do. do. Get, yep, okay. absolutely. So there's a group of CEOs or executive directors, whatever they call them in each market, and you gather. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So Sherm is um, you know, sort of the governing you know, parent, if you will, out of Washington, D.C., and they meaning Sherm. So we have, there's over 500 chapters, Sherm chapters across the country. And, um, but wow. 500. Oh, so there's, okay, yep. So the chapters are, um, you know, as small as 35 people and as large as three or 4,000 people. And yeah, what's your membership right now, what we're talking about? We're members? a little over 2,100. So we're, we're what they consider super mega. So there's about five of us that are around this size. And then there's another dozen that are sort of fit the super mega fold. And so in that, there's maybe 20 of us that get together on an annual basis, face-to-face. Sometimes the large chapters. A lar- they're all large chapters. We're not all exactly structured the same way. Some of them are still more volunteer-based. But but those of us that are, you know, have the larger um, membership and are structured, we have, you know, we each have five or six, seven staff. We don't run a big conference. We have enough similarity from a business standpoint that it makes sense for us to get together. We also have monthly meetings, just conference calls to share ideas and things like that. So I think just like anything... Um, you know, different markets need different things, right? When I used to, you know, hire salespeople for Boston Beer, 
the type of person or the type of sales that you would do in this market are very different than Texas or very different than the Pacific Northwest or sort of Southern California. So um, there are just different needs based on what industry is there. So because that feeds into what kind of um, role that HR might play and how many corporate headquarters are there. So, you know, you might be in Atlanta where there are a lot of big corporations and you have a lot of big companies so that, you know, you may have a variety of HR professionals and Silicon Valley, completely different, you know, set of needs. They, they even have their own certification. Uh, so it depends on, you know, the different markets. I think in general, we're on the same page in terms of most of our programming around what the needs are. Um, but again, it, it just, it's kind of, it depends on, um, and, and we're on the same page in terms of what the other competition is. So we, you know, everybody sort of has the same, you know, social media competition, the same market, you know, brokers or people offering programming in the market that, that you know, provides um, some competition. But generally, it, it, the type of programming that might be done is mostly based on kind of what is needed. And here in Boston, I think there are a couple of things. One is we're heavy academic environment. So even when we talk about certification, New England was one of the last ones to sort of jump on the, the certification. Isn't that ironic? It is, but we're also what people like to call overeducated. So we would go back and get an MBA versus become certified. So there's SHRM certification and there's HRCI certification. And in either case, it, they've been slower. Now, in the last couple of years, and I, I think that it's both because of the evolution of the profession and also because of the impact of the economy, we started to see certification a plus, certification required. So now I think we've probably caught up to most other markets. But in general, people would go back and get a master's degree or, or you know, um, some other advanced degree, whether it was in business or not. And in lieu of, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, in lieu of certification. So that I think that makes us a little different um, in terms of how we might approach some of our programming. Who's the greatest leader you've ever worked for? I think a couple come to mind. One, um, I would say Jim Cook, who's the founder of Boston Beer. Uh, there was just, ironically, a, an article this morning on him from the Business Insider, and they were talking about, you know, he's a billionaire, right? Mm. Um, and yet he's just Jim. He's in his, his, he's, he's flat, his flannel, even in the interviews, flannel Sam, Sam Adams shirt and his khaki pants. And um, he said, I'm the Willy Wonka of beer. I mean, he just hasn't, you know, they're like, this guy has the best job in the world. He's like, I'm drinking by eight o'clock in the morning, but I'm a, he, I'm a trained professional. Like, I, I think I admire that. Um, he hasn't really changed. I mean, he, he definitely went through this period, and I was at the tail end of this when I came on board, of being the CEO and president. And the man's got three degrees from Harvard. He's absolutely capable of being CEO and president. But he handed that off to someone and became the brewer. And that's where I feel like this with Nara. Like, when you find your spot, like, in, and clearly that had been his spot, but for whatever reason, he'd gone into the CEO role for a while because you know, he owned the company. Um, when they went public, then he, he started to do this other stuff. And I just admired that he hasn't really changed that much. And I think being he's been true to himself. Consistent. And yeah. consistent. And, um, and the brand's done really well. And it's had its ebbs and flows. But he stayed, he's stayed true to himself and to the brand, which I think... Um, you know, is it admirable 30 some years later? Right. Really led the craft through revolution. Yeah. Absolutely. Know, it's, it's Even with the pressure of, you know, all the things that 
have been thrown their way in terms of, oh, you know, grew everything in Massachusetts or you guys. Oh, I'm glad like, you brought that up. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> I remember watching a gotcha investigative reporting piece. I think it was on 2020. Yeah. And they were interviewing him. And they asked him that question like they caught him. You don't even brew this in Boston. And he, yeah. had, the, he had the answer ready. Yeah. If Julia Child came to your <laughs> kitchen and made you dinner, would you say that you cook dinner or Julia Child? And all the time during the interview, He's he was sipping a <laughs> Sam Adams. And I, just, uh, I like that guy right off the bat. So. Yeah. But that's a great experience you had to get up and close with him. Yeah. Yeah. Really, um, you know, someone who I just think has just been true to who he is and not try to be someone else. You know, which is admirable. Protecting uh, the innocent or the guilty. Can you share a bad leader story? Um, sure. I think that I've, you know, having worked in HR, you see all kinds of things, right? And so maybe not necessarily someone I work directly for, but I think that um, in environments that are, well, when the business is set up to, incentivize people for things that are not always perfectly aligned with a people strategy. So if your primary job is sales, I don't even care what you're selling, that's going to be your, that's going to be front and center. And when, and that's great. But when you're, when you move into a role where you have responsibility for people in general, I think that that's where I've seen the rub because it's a, well, this is what I do and this is how the organization makes money. And so why would I want to do anything else? Why would I want to develop people? Why would I care about my behavior? Why, you know, if I'm the top salesperson, I'm probably going to, you know, be able to get, I can schmooze my way out of having to do these things. And so there's this incongruency with, um, and it doesn't just happen in sales. I think people being tech, moved from technical roles into leadership um, sometimes the behavior comes out of just not knowing what to do, and sometimes it comes out of ego, right? And and so in every organization I've been in, I've probably dealt with, you know, my fair share of people who I either had to sell on why we're trying to, you know, develop someone or why we shouldn't fire someone even though you'd really like to, to just bad behavior, kicking a garbage can, stomping their feet. <laughs> sometimes they, but they get away with it sometimes because of those reasons you described. Yeah, absolutely. But I wonder the next generation, I don't know if the millennials are going to put up with so. that. I, I absolutely much. agree with you. I think sometimes I feel like I put, you know, because all these things that the millennials are doing, I love. Like the flexible work and, you know, just the fluidity with how they think and, you know, the lack of hierarchy, all these things. And I absolutely agree with you. I think they won't put up with a non-diverse non-inclusive organization, and I don't think they'll put up with bad behavior, partly because they don't have to, right? And partly because they know it's not right. right. And it's not that you and I didn't, you know, have, feel like we had to put up with it, or we didn't think it was right, or we weren't purpose-driven. It's just this generation has a bigger voice than I think that, that Gen X did, um, probably because of their well, we size. Well, we raised by people that worked for the same company for their whole life. Exactly. Right. 40 years, right. right. Yeah, and you just sort of, yeah, you just sort of put up with it, yeah. You don't rock the boat. You mentioned diversity and inclusion, mm -hmm. and my view is that Nero has done some great things. I've been to many events that you've put on since you've been the CEO of Nero that have had great speakers. And maybe just a little bit about your more about your thinking on diversity and inclusion and some of the people that you look for to the thought leadership in that area. I know you've had some of them speak, but just maybe a little bit more 
about what nearer your view absolutely with regard to that where you think things should go absolutely so um I will say that NARA has had a footprint in DNI for quite a long time, which I'm very proud of. When I came on board, they already had um, the DNI Community Forum, and that had been running for years and years at the gala, obviously, that had been running for quite a long time. Right, that's the spring event. Right. Some people show up a month early to that. <laughs> Some people do, and then they never hear the end that. of it. <laughs> that's right. That's a long-running joke. Like, yeah, I took a picture in the lobby of that hotel when nobody was there. Better early away. than late. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's early than late. Right. So, so those, those but that is a big event. That's your biggest. I think that is your biggest event you put on, where there's that many people in the same room. I know the conference yeah. probably has more touches to people overall. If it's three days um, or four days, <laughs> looking at your chart on the wall here, I think it's four <laughs> days. I'm not sure. <laughs> but that you have 500 people or yeah. more sometimes at that event. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, the, no, I think the gala, is, you know, is sort of our signature event outside of the conference for exactly what you said. You, we sort of have everybody in one room for one night. So we have a captive audience. And the primary driver for that event has always been the scholarships. So over the course of, I think, 22, 23 years we've been doing it now, we've given nearly $100,000 to high school students. And, um, and those students are, you know, usually the highlight. I mean, we... we as you know, we had Billie Jean King a couple of years ago, which she was phenomenal. Um, we've had a lot of... My really... mom was very excited to get one of her signed tennis balls that she threw with the audience. So. Yeah, she... Now, I'm a hero, thanks to you. <laughs> she was just great. Um, and yet, the the high school students who stand up there at 18 years old and tell their stories um, are, are usually, even after Billie Jean King, you know, the uh, highlight. Those are emotional... Talks and inspiring. Right. And so that's one of the ways. So we, we have programming. We have a monthly forum that we do that is a little bit more casual. It's a networking opportunity. We have a guest speaker and, and usually, and we cover some sort of diversity topic. And then we do diversity programming in general, whether it's how to hire veterans or we've done some work around ch- transgender and, and disabilities and all the different facets of, of diversity. But the, the gala is really the celebratory event and probably our deepest touch into the community because of um, how we go about finding those scholarship students and then giving back. And this year we had a couple of students that came, came back who we had given money to a few years ago. And it's great to see um, that even though, you know, it's a $5,000 check, that that somehow was the seed for their success, that they, you know, went to college because of that or they were able to do something that maybe they wouldn't have been able to do. So I think DNI. Um, is it's been part of what we've done for a really long time, but it's also evolved from both from a I think a profession standpoint. You know, it still falls into to HR because that's a natural spot for it to be. Although we're starting to see it move in different directions um, in terms of the reporting relationships, but generally speaking, it's it's sort of under the the HR umbrella. But there. Unlike HR, there hasn't been as much training and rigor around, you know, what does it mean to be an H- a diversity professional? And there's more certification now for that. And also just, I think, a better understanding of um, the types of programs that will support both becoming a really great diversity professional, how to be a diversity leader, but then also how to sell that inside of your organization. Why? The why. Yeah. Right. People know it's important, but we've really moved, I think, as a profession from it's a nice to do to it's a business imperative. If there are people that you'd recommend people read about or, you know, find on YouTube, who are some of the, your favorites that you'd say are great thought leaders in this area? Right. I am Howard Ross, who um, teaches unconscious bias. He's like the guru. He's amazing. We've had him. We've also had Leslie Traub, who's one of his uh, colleagues. She was at the conference last year. So I would say in general, he's sort of the 
the guru in that space. I think the interesting thing about diversity is, I mean, there is a lot of variety. And and conscious bias sort of, for me, sits in the center because it it touches everything that you, around diversity. Right. I think they do. I've read something about this recently that they can do tests to prove that all of us have it to some extent. Absolutely. You know, whether it's gender or race or, you know, it's... Yeah. And it's there it's to there. some extent with everybody. And and instead of feeling guilty about it, how do you recognize it and manage, manage it? Because it's not probably not going to go away. But if you understand that that's your, you know, if you can raise it a little bit to the surface and say, okay, now I, I get that I have this bias um, that maybe I didn't understand before or I felt guilty about, so I hid. That then how do you figure out how to manage it so it doesn't impact your decisions? Because the biggest thing is it's going to impact promoting someone, hiring someone, you know, any, any people decision that you make, um, it could even be not as a hiring manager, but just how you treat your peers or colleagues and things like that. So it's, he's probably my favorite. There are people in the, in the, um, in the Boston market, including Ed Hurley Wales, who's our current uh, board president. Absolutely. He's the vice president of, of market diversity for ADP. Um, had, it was a lifelong, started in the Navy, but then moved into, um, HR, mostly in high tech for a very long time. And, um, he, I think, of all the people that I know in this space, when I talk to him, I feel like he gets it. Um, he, he gets it better than I do, obviously, but he, he, we talk a lot about that skill set and what makes a, an impactful diversity leader and the type of work that an organization needs to do in order to really move the needle. And it's a lot of work. And sometimes I think we forget that. We want things to move quickly. Like, oh, we had this training. Why is everybody still acting the same way? Or, like a lot of other things, right? Right, just, right. So he, um, I, I give him a lot of credit for where we are from a diversity standpoint at NARA versus where we were 10 years ago. Because I think he's pushed that. Any, anything that jumps to mind as far as misconceptions about diversity inclusion programs that you, what are some of the things that you see where people... I think tra- their instincts are wrong or their intuition's wrong about DNA. I think that um, it goes back to, and this happened in HR too, like training doesn't fix everything. So just because you have sexual harassment training or just because you have unconscious bias training or what other, other, other kind of training you might offer, that doesn't change the culture. It's the accountability that changes the culture. And it's you have to have accountability from the top down and the senior leadership needs to kind of walk the talk so an investment in in diversity has to go beyond training and development and I think that's the piece of it that people will catch on really quickly if you're just doing a lot of training or making them go to a lot of training and it then nothing changes. it can't be event driven mm-hmm. and then and nothing changes so like so why am I going to yet another training when you know I know nothing's going to change so I think that's the biggest hurdle um and I also think that the, the lack of metrics around it or the lack of accountability for metrics, and HR has gone through this quite a bit as well. So you do all of these things. You make the investment. Even you see some behavior change, but what really changed? Like what is, what's your imperative? Are you trying to get more women in your C-suite? Are you trying to get more diversity across the board? You might have more diversity in one sector or one level of your organization, but is it at the top? You know, that I think being transparent about those metrics, first of all, getting a handle on them. So it's not just activity-based. Um, I think Silicon Valley, you know, has been transparent about those challenges and sort of leading the way from a tech standpoint um, around, you know, what they're, what's working and what's not. Yeah, some of the biggest news seems to come from that area. Yeah, yeah, which is which is great. Um, 
but now everybody else has to sort of follow suit and say it's not about the money or the or the activity. It's about okay, we did this now five years later. It's what is the, how's the culture change? Right? right. That's really so. In my humble non practitioner of HR opinion, I think one of the biggest changes has been uh, for HR has been the way that organizations are starting to view annual performance appraisals. You had a speaker, David Rock, that really I thought was quite enlightening. I learned a lot from him and what he had to say. Was that last year or two years ago? Last year. It was yep. last year, yeah. Yep. Um, and the way we do employee ratings, and I, I think it ties into what we talked about millennials. We don't Millennials don't want a number put on their forehead. It's demotivating. Right. Um, anything that you want to share about this subject and what do you see coming with the next chapter in this, or what are you hearing from your members and your board about this subject? Um, definitely a hot topic in the last, I would say, three years. So if you go back to your question about what are the you know, the things I think talent, like looking for talent is, is still like that's where the big pressure point is. But this whole performance evaluation topic um, has just exploded in the last couple of years. And, and it's for a lot for the reasons that you mentioned, like people just don't. Everyone hates it. HR hates it. Managers hate it. Employees hate it. Like no one likes it. it yet up until recently... No one had really come up with an alternative. And HR or, or employment attorneys will say, well, you have to have something. Da, da, da. And some organizations are like, not really. You can just get rid of it. Yeah, yeah get, get rid of it. So, you know, we've seen, I've heard um, from the head of talent at The Gap a couple of times. We had him at the conference. We've had him in our senior forum a few times. And they, out in this, actually at the corporate office, got, away, got rid of him. Um, and then created a different sort of system of measurement of performance that was, that, so they have these, these conversations so that people are still getting feedback, but it's separate of sort of these these uh, quantitative goals and, and targets because I think people what people will say is one thing or the other. They'll be like, I just want to blow it up. And at the end of the day, you can't really blow it up if you're going to have some sort of performance-based competition. Uh, Compensation, right, yeah, right. right. So they want to blow it up. What they usually mean is they want to blow it up as it is, as it currently is. And so, how do they get from that point to something that works? And it's usually iterative. So, um, and and the gap the gap is no different than that. They've kind of done it internally. Now they're trying to roll it out to the stores. And so, what does this mean? Because those environments are different. And how do they build in the kind of consistent feedback? This ten minute conversation versus. Um, doing it once a year, so they're trying to figure out closer tied to when the work was done. When the work was done, after action kind of approach, and and what's really important, and what are we, you know, what are the metrics around the organization, and and in a retail environment, you know, that's important anyway because they're always going to be looking at the sales numbers. So, what's the behavior that drives us that sale? So, um, Deloitte's done some really good work around this, Mm -hmm. and I like the fact that they did it all internally, and so now they they have their big HR organization inside. Yeah, and then they can take that. Now they can take the things that they've learned, what worked, and and pull it out, you know, push it out to their clients, which I think is great. So it's like they don't also don't like the ratings. They also don't like giving giving feedback for the most part or get it, you know. So there's, right. there's all these elements that, that people don't like. But you can't, you have to have something, um, something tangible, something measurable. And it's not a compliance you have to. It's a how do you, um, how do you develop or promote people or how do they know even where they stand in an organization if you don't right. have something. Right, how do you something? ensure managers are having conversations with yeah. their employees yeah. about and, these topics, right? right? Yeah. And the equity around, you know, how you're paying someone and all of those things that unfortunately um, I think still have to happen, but they can happen in a, de- a different way. And um, so, and GE is a great example because they're so highly performance based. That this is my last HR question. Great. What's the oddest, oddest, strangest, craziest HR story that you've 
You don't have to mention any companies or people or is there anything that comes to mind? Just a wild HR story. I'm sure our HR listeners would love to hear one so they don't feel alone. Yes, yes. Well, you know, those of us in HR often say, you know, there's a book to be written about all the crazy things that happen. And so everybody has their their own favorite story, I think. Um, let me think if I can. <laughs> I have to figure out a way to, to, to protect, protect the innocent. I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, my stories largely relate to managers who weren't properly equipped to be managers is might be a nice way to put it right they can weren't you give an example they weren't something. trained yes i can um you know i had a manager once who I, I had become dependent upon the hr department for a lot of things so you know a lot of times we're the heavy we're the bad guy where we're delivering the bad messages but he called and said so and so just showed up to work in go-go boots and um, that's not part of the dress code. And so he was looking to me for like, well, what do I do? And I was like, tell her to go home. But you know, it was one of those things. I think at that point I, I said, I think we need to put him through training, some sort of basic <laughs> training that you, and, and the thing that I think always got me is that you have really highly competent people. Sometimes they're executives, right? They're in, or they, they may even be in the C-suite. And, when and it, they're but brilliant it, and accomplished. Brilliant. But right. when it comes to these um, what HR people, because we are exposed to it all the time, seem to us as kind of common sense. And so um, I've definitely had the manager who's come in and shut the door and said, I want to, you know, I want to fire, you know, Jane tomorrow. And there's no documentation other than how wonderful Jane is. You know, I think we've all, we all have that one. I've had a couple of sticky situations in terminations that, you know, required security and um, outplacement firms and things that, you know, some, some of those some of those organizations ended up being, um, you know, later really close friends because you go through that and you never really, you know, you kind of prepare for the worst and you know, nothing ever really uh, ends up being that bad. But I think it is a, um, in that respect, it's, it, it's something different every day. Um, and I think that I was fortunate enough to work in some organizations where, let's take Boston Beer, for example. You know, I walked in there and we had a five o'clock rule. You could drink beer after five o'clock. And people sell beer all day long. And so theoretically, you would think there would be all kinds of HR issues around drinking. And there was not one in the five years that I was there that was directly related to someone having too much alcohol. There are all kinds of other things that went on, but it had nothing to do with the product. And I think partly because people respected the product um, and they respected what we did. And so, you know, everyone made a beeline down to the kitchen at five o'clock. Absolutely. That that was, you know, that was a given, but it wasn't... Including HR? Including you HR. Yes, absolutely. Well, what's funny is before we built the internal bar where we had... Um, and we had beer on tap all the time. You could go down there at noon, but just no one did. That's what I mean by respect. But before we built that, they had to walk by my office to get to the cooler. And the new hires would just kind of like, whoosh, like really good. And I'd be like, can you bring me one? You know, because they were always like worried that, you know, I was going to, you know, that's the third one you've had. But I but I was, I was just the opposite. I would try to engage and let them understand that that was just part of um, who we were. I mean, it was... We always saw it as a not necessarily when drinking in, internally, but externally as a marketing opportunity. You know, we had orientation, and we took everybody out to lunch. And you, you, Dave, walk into let's say legal seafood, and you see twelve people drinking Sam Adams, and you don't know that we're 
you know, a new hire orientation. You walk by and you're like, oh, maybe I'll have, maybe not right now, but maybe I'll have one tonight. So that was sort of the mentality of it too, which was um, kind of fun. All right, my silly questions. I got a couple. We have a few minutes here. Um, I'll let you get back to your conference planning <laughs> with one month to go. What's your favorite movie? Oh, um, this is probably going to reveal too much about me, but I'm just going to say it because it's the only movie that if it's on, I'll sit and watch it, which is Overboard. I with know it. Goldie Hawn and um, Kurt Russell. I don't even know. It is the it's the set where they met as well, and I just I love it. it it's and I for a variety of reasons. I think um, one, so she's like this big snooty, you know, she millionaire, and he's working on the property um, or on the boat. I think that she has, and she's just awful to him. And then she ends up falling over board hitting her head doesn't remember who she is and then he takes her and he lives in like this horrible shack with three little kids three little boys that are just like nuts I mean they're just horrible but then they end up falling in love the kids love her and you know so it's got this really great ending that um it's like a romantic comedy I guess and it is just one of those things that if, if I'm flipping through the channels and it's on I you just can't go by that one up. I I always just get sucked into it what's the first concert you ever attended Beach Boys with my parents in 1978, wow. and it was great. See the I, West Coast, West yeah. Coast, and I I saw them again as I when I was older, but that one um, in particular, you know, I'll never forget. It was just a big deal. With right? your parents, wow. Yeah. And your last concert was the last one you went to. <laughs> oh, it's been a while. <laughs> no, it's it hasn't. Been a while. It hasn't oh, been all the way. I. Attended Guns N' Roses concert last year. Actually, this in August of last year <laughs> at Gillette Stadium. I am I'm an '80s kid, so uh, I, and I loved you're it. You're a rocker, Tracy. It was a great concert. It was really, uh, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Well, with that, I think we're going to end the podcast. Let you get back to work. We really appreciate you coming on the Hennessy Report. Absolutely. And, uh, Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for the mirror question of the podcast as well. You're, you're welcome. My pleasure. We'll see you in the conference in a month. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.